Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 148, where we go, uh, well, back to the uh, Patreon archives to share a uh, naughty episode of Cosmic Treadmill After Dark with our uh, wider audience here on uh, the main Chris and Reggie feed. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, Wally Wood's Gangbang from uh, 1980, I believe. Um, not, and if you've listened to the last couple of episodes, you're probably familiar with me saying things like, uh, this is, you know, not suitable for children, uh, uh, listener discretion advised, please wear your earbuds. Um, this episode might be the worst of them all. So, uh, this one, fair warning, uh, we will give you several warnings even after, you know, I shift us over to the actual episode, but, uh, yeah, this one's, uh... Highly uh, explicit. Uh, lots of sexual themes in here. Um, this is uh, some of uh, Wally Wood's later work. Uh, but the uh, the bit about this episode that I'm excited to share is that this is the first time that Reggie and I actually got to do a deep dive on Wally Wood. So there's a pretty good bio in there if we can, you know, peel back all of the uh, all of the naughty stuff. Um, so maybe if you just want to listen to the uh, first. I don't know, 20 minutes, half hour of the show, uh, so you can learn a little bit about uh, Mr. Wood and his uh, his life and times. I mean, if you want to shut it off when that's over, I wouldn't hold it against you, <laughs> because it is, uh, it's some dirty stuff. But I think that's all I've got for you. We've got one more episode of After Dark to share next week. After that, it will be the final episode, which is, of course, the uh, the celebration of the Cosmic Treadmill. I've got uh, a lot of folks lined up uh, to uh, to deliver some audio and to have some discussions with me. If uh, And I've been chilling this kind of hard for the past month, trying to make sure anybody who wants to be part of this can be a part of this. So if uh, you are interested, please reach out to uh, at gmail.com or acecomics on Twitter. But the good news is, in two weeks when this is over, I uh, will no longer bother people about being on this show. So you won't have me in your face asking about this anymore after that. Uh, I think that's all I've got. Uh, Just one more warning. This is some um, explicit material. And if you do decide to listen past the the next bit of music here, I hope you enjoy the show. and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill After Dark, episode number four, where we go to the the back back of the the store store. and read the comic books that your mother warned you not to read. If she was a Mm -hmm. good mother, I'm not sure. My mother actually gave me some comics uh, that were in the back of the store, but not the one we're going to read today. Hopefully not this one. Not this one. (laughs) She was better than that. Uh, Thanks to our patrons. This is, of course, a patron-exclusive show. Uh, so thanks to everybody for your support. I uh, hope you enjoy it. 
Um, you know, we got this, and we have uh, another episode of Comics Talk coming up this month, and then we'll be into February. By the way, in case it's not clear, this episode and all episodes of Cosmic Treadmill After Dark are not suitable for children, and this one in particular contains explicit sexual themes. So, uh, yeah. fair warning. What are we? What are we reading here today, Chris? You weren't kidding when you said explicit. I don't know if we can let the let the folks know that there are actually a lot of lines under that word because this is going <laughs> to be. It's totally explicit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we're reading uh, Wally Wood's Gangbang Number One, published by Nuance Incorporated in 1980 by Wally Wood, of course. Uh, the first printing has a cover price of five dollars and ninety-five cents. Does this sound like but the kind of publisher as... <laughs> they, they should be called Nuance, Chris? Does this seem like a very nuanced? <laughs> Title to you? It should be like, you know, Hammer to the Head. Really, yeah. uh, Incorporated LLC. Uh, Now, before we get into the banging and ganging, we're going to talk about Wally Wood. Now, he was born Wallace Allen Wood on June 17th, 1927 in Monaga, Minnesota. Now, he said that his dream at age six was finding a magic pencil that could draw anything. His father was a lumberjack and beat Wally frequently, as he would recall to one-time assistant Ralph Reese some years later. Uh, Wood would graduate from high school in 1944, and he enlisted in the post-World War II U.S. Army's 11th Airborne Division two years later in 1946. He'd be stationed in occupied Japan. He was assigned to the island of Hokkaido. Now, I just want to say a few words about this group of enlisted men, these particularly the folks occupying Japan post-World War II and pre-the Korean War. We don't know any specific stories about Wally Wood's time in the service, and even if we heard rumors about them, we wouldn't pass them on as fact, uh, at least not without crediting them as rumors. Uh, We do know about the U.S. military men occupying Japan after World War II, and they live like kings, sampling the finest things Japan had to offer. Uh, and we mean that, uh, you know, food, wine, In women, every way, yes. everything you can imagine. Uh, one of the reasons we know it was so comfortable for them is that in 1950, when the Korean War began, uh, one of the reasons it was so difficult initially is that the first military men sent to the front lines were those stationed in Japan. And they were really too fat and out of shape to contend with the communist Korean army. They really were not uh, battle-ready. Like we said, we don't know anything specific about Wally Wood here. Uh, And he was on that remote northernmost island of Japan, so he almost was like in his own world, I would think. Uh, And and he was discharged before the Korean War started, so we don't know what he might have been like in a combat situation. But considering what we know about his taste for women and the grape later in life... It's possible that some of those habits started right here in Hokkaido. That's all. That's all. Just a, just a conjecture. Uh, <laughs> if you want to, you know, color in a possibly a kind of missing piece of his life that might have happened over there. So anyway, while still enlisted, Wally enrolled in the Minneapolis School of Art. He lasted only one term. Uh, decided they couldn't teach me anything, and they had the same idea, said uh, Wood recalled in his National Cartoonist Society biography. After his discharge in 1948, Wally moved to New York City, with his mother and younger brother, where Wally first worked as a busboy at Bickford's Restaurant. In his spare time, he hauled his portfolio around midtown Manhattan looking for work, and he also briefly attended the Hogarth School of Art, but he dropped out after one semester. Now, in the waiting room of a publisher that would reject them both, Wood would meet John Severin, who took him back to the Charles William Harvey studio. There, Wally would meet Charles Stern, Bill Elder, and Harvey Kurtzman. From there, he got a tip about Will Eisner needing an artist to ink backgrounds for the spirit, and so he headed over to Eisner's studio and was hired there on the spot. 
while he was inspired by the spirit as a young man. So this was a pretty much a dream job for him. Yeah. Things would snowball for Wally from here. He would he drew several strips for Fox Features. He was an assistant to Terry and the Pirates artist George Wonder for a time. Uh, he cited that his first job on his own as chief obstacle for Woeful Indian, that's a continuing series of strips for a 1949 newspaper that was put out by the Union Party of Mount Kisco, whatever that is. Yeah, that Mount uh, Kisco <laughs> is a place in upstate New York, so I love Oh, there you is. go. <laughs> <laughs> now, years later, Wood would remember these strips as being pretty horrible. Uh, to the book Comic Buyer's Guide in 1981, he would recall... The first professional job was lettering for Fox Romance Comics in 1948. This lasted about a year. I also started doing backgrounds, then inking. Most of it was the romance stuff. For complete pages, it was $5 a page. Twice a week, I would ink 10 pages in one day. Whoa, not too bad there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wood's first published artwork was the was the tip-off woman in the Fox Comics Western Women Outlaws Number 4, January 1949, covers date. Wood's next known comic book art did not appear until Fox's My Confession Number 7 in August 1949, cover date. And after this, Wood became like a romance comics guy and lent his talents to Fox Comics. Similar titles... And we're really similar. My experience, my secret life, my love story, and my true love, colon, thrilling confession stories. His first signed work is believed to be in my confession number 8, October 1949, cover date with the name Woody, half hidden on a theater marquee. Wood began at EC, co-penciling and co-inking with Harry Harrison, the story Too Busy for Love in Modern Love Number 5, February 1950 cover date, and fully penciling the lead story I Was Just a Playtime Cowgirl in Saddle Romances Number 11, April 1950 cover date, inked again by Harrison. Uh, that's a title that's just begging for like a, a stage show, isn't it? Really? Yes. <laughs> now, working from studio at uh, at 64th Street near Columbus Circle, uh, Wood produced work for Avon and increasingly through the 1950s to EC Comics. He became known as a great science fiction artist, but Wood drew horror, human humor, and war stories for EC. He was instrumental in convincing Gaines to publish the uh, science fiction titles Weird Science and Weird Fantasy. And hey, don't forget that he drew Super Duper Man from Mad Number 4 that we talked about not too long ago on the uh, night of yeah. Treadmill. Yeah, the, uh, the when, when you're allowed to read them. Uh, now, in a 1983 Comics Journal interview, EC publisher Bill Gaines would recall, Wally Wood would come in with a story, and three artists would crowd around him and just faint, just pouring over every brushstroke and every panel. Working over scripts and pencil breakdowns by Jules Pfeiffer, Wood drew two months of Will Eisner's The Spirit on the 1952 story arc, The Spirit in Outer Space. According to Wood, Eisner paid him about $30 a week for lettering and backgrounds on the spirit. Sometimes he paid $40 when I did the drawings, too. Now, folks that, again, here's a little aside, trying to color in Wood's life here. Uh, Folks that live or work in Manhattan know exactly what's over by Columbus Circle today. That's the sprawling cultural and arts plaza known as Lincoln Center. But not so in the 1950s. At that time, it was home to some of the worst slums in the borough. Indeed, that's why there wasn't a lot of opposition to clearing them away in the 1960s. But in the 1950s, which is when we're talking about when Wally Wood worked there, it was a pretty raw neighborhood. In 2010, Jules Pfeiffer recalled Wood's studio, he said, which was at that time in the very slummy Upper West Side of Manhattan in the West 60s, years before it was the Lincoln Center area. 
uh, it was a cartoonist and science fiction writer's ghetto. Just a huge room where the walls were knocked down, dark, smelly, roach-infested, and all these cartoonists and writers bent over their tables. One was the science fiction writer Harry Harrison. EC's longtime editor Al Feldstein recalled, I had given Harrison and Wood a few assignments and quickly came to realize that Wally was being exploited by Harry and that the work was actually all Wally's. I managed to have a private conversation with Wally, encouraged him to free himself from Harry, and told him that I would give him work if he did. The rest is history. AC Comics and Mad Magazine staple contributor Jack Davis said, I didn't know Woody all too well. Really about the only time I'd see him is when we'd show up at the office at the same time to drop off work, and then maybe we'd go to lunch. He was a pleasant man, but he'd always be looking over his shoulder, his eyes shifting around, as if he was worried about something. Between 1957 and 1967, Wood produced both covers and interiors for more than 60 issues of Science Fiction Digest, uh, Galaxy Science Fiction. He illustrated such authors as Isaac Asimov, Philip K. Dick, Jack Finney, C.M. Kornbluth, Frederick Paul, uh, Robert Silverberg, Robert Sheckley, Clifford D. Simak, and Jack Vance. Uh, He painted six covers for Galaxy Science Fiction novels between 1952 and 1958. Al Feldstein, by now the editor-in-chief of Mad Magazine, commented on Wood's growing alcoholism during this time. He says, It was after I took over the editorship of Mad in 1956 that I really noticed that there was a serious problem. It became a huge problem for me when his work was getting sloppy and unacceptable. His one-panel cartoons appeared in the men's magazine Dude, Gent, and Nugget. (laughs) (laughs) Nugget. That's a trio of magazines, right? Yeah. Uh, Now, Wood inked the first eight months of the uh, 1958 through 1961 syndicated comic strip Sky Masters of the Space Force, and that was penciled by Jack Kirby. Uh, Wally also provided picture covers for the 1959 Aladdin Books reissues of Bob Merrill's 1947 Childhood of Famous Americans series. Yeah, this was a big deal at the time. I don't know. It's sort of been lost to time, but it was a huge set. It was a tremendous set of books that was like in every American home for many decades, and it's like no one even heard of it anymore. (laughs) Uh, Indeed, just to just list all the work done by Wally Wood in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s would take up an entire podcast. Uh, He did pencil and inking work for Marvel in its 1950s iteration, Atlas Comics. DC, including House of Mystery and Challengers of the Unknown. And Warren, he worked in Creepy and Eerie. To such smaller firms as Avon, he did Eerie. That was a different Eerie than the one that Warren did and Strange (laughs) Worlds. Charlton, he did work on Warren Attack, Jungle Jungle Jim. For Fox he did, Comics, he did Martin Kane and Private Eye. For Gold Key, he did Mars Patrol Total War and Fantastic Voyage. For Harvey Comics, he drew Unearthly Spectaculars. For King Comics, Jungle Jim. For Atlas Seaboard, The Destructor. For Youthful Comics, he did Captain Science and the toy company Wham-O. He even drew for Wham-O Giant Comics. <laughs> wow, a lot of comics. So, uh, yeah, in 1965, Wood co-created Thunder Agents for Tower Comics. That's T-H-U-N-D-E-R, Agents. And he wrote and drew the 1967 syndicated Christmas comic strip, Bucky's Christmas Caper. Uh, during the 1960s, Wood did many trading cards and humor products for Topps Chewing Gum, including concept roughs for Topps, famed uh, 1962 Mars Attacks cards, uh, prior to the final art by Bob, Bob Powell and Norman Saunders. 
For Marvel, uh, Wood was the uh, penciler inker of Daredevil's issues 5 through 8, that's December 1964 through June 1965 cover dates, and established the title's, title character's distinctive red costume in issue number 7, April 1965 cover date. If you remember, he had that yellowish, the yellow one at first. Yeah, he had a yellow and red one. It actually changed slightly over the first bunch of issues. One of my oh, favorite yeah. opening arcs was he's actually like figuring it out, but if you like that red costume, it's a Wally Wood design, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, uh, due to lateness, or maybe Stan Lee's spite, depending on who tells the story and when, uh, Wood was relegated to inking only for issues 9 through 11 of uh, Daredevil. Uh, During the uh, 1962 Mad Magazine staff trip to the Virgin Islands, uh, Wood was arrested and subsequently fired from Mad entirely. In the summer of 1966, Wood launched an independent magazine called Wit's End, uh, one of the first alternative comics and and predated the underground comics explosion. Uh, The first issue had contributions from Wood himself and also uh, Ralph Reese, Al Williamson, Steve Ditko, Gil Kane, Jack Kirby, Roy Krenkel, and even more folks. He put out black and white issues sporadically until issue number four when he turned it over to Bill Pearson for a dollar. (laughs) And that's something that we did talk about in uh, in greater length uh, during our uh, underground comic series of Weird Comics History. I think it just says a lot about his attitude, though, that he started up Woodson, probably got into it. Then I think he was like, whatever, I just don't even want to deal with this anymore. Here you go. Uh, Woods also known as the artist of the unsigned satirical Disneyland Memorial Orgy poster, which first appeared in Paul Krasner's magazine, The Realist, number 74. That was a May 1967 cover date. It depicts a lot of copyrighted Disney characters engaging in sex acts and drug use, while Cinderella's castle on the background radiates dollar signs. As late as 1981, when asked who did that drawing, Wood replied, I'd rather not say anything about that. It was the most pirated drawing in history. Everyone was printing copies of that. I understand some people got busted for selling it. I always thought Disney stuff was pretty sexy, Snow White, etc., and we'll see how sexy he thought Snow White was in a little while. (laughs) Very soon. (laughs) Uh, Disney took no legal action against either Krasner or The Realist, but did sue a publisher of a blacklight version of the poster who used the image without Krasner's permission, and that case was settled out of court, so... I would love to know some of the weird backstory in there, but uh, I think it might be lost forever. Who knows? Uh, For military news in 1968, Wood created the sexy and frequently nude action-adventure character Sally Forth, first appearing in the June issue of that year. She returned July 26, 1971, and with Wood getting an assist from writer-artists Nick Cudi, Pat Paul Kirchner, and Larry Hama, Sally Forth continued in the Overseas Weekly until April 22, 1974. And uh, remember that name, we will be meeting her again later. We sure will. Uh, in 1969, Wood created another independent comic uh, called Heroes Incorporated Presents Canon. Uh, intended for his Sally Forth military readership, as indicated in the ads in Indicia. Uh, artist Steve Ditko and Ralph Reese, uh, the writer Ron White, uh, they're usually credited with primary writer artist Wood on three features, those being Canon, The Misfits, and Dragonella. A second magazine format issue was published in 1976 by Wood and CPL Gang Productions, and those are the uh, folks from the Charlton Bullseye, uh, yeah. the, the fanzine folks there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Larry Hammer, one of Wood's assistants, would say, I did script about three Sally Forth stories and a few of the canons. I wrote the main Sally Forth story in the first reprint book, which is actually dedicated to me, mostly because I lent Woody the money to publish it. Mm-hmm. In the late 1960s, uh, he divorced his wife, Tatiana Wood, who would become a successful comic book cartoonist by that time. Uh, a second marriage to Marilyn Silver uh, ended quickly, uh, wrapped up in 1972. 
Former assistant Ralph Reese uh, said of Wood, he never really had any hobbies or outside interests. Too much stewing in your own juices is not necessarily a healthy thing. I don't know that in any situation that's a healthy thing. Probably not, but uh, you yeah. know, definitely when you're already in a kind of a lonely uh, yeah. career trajectory, you know, it's a lot of sitting, a lot of sitting quietly at a table is uh, the art of life of a cartoonist, you know. <laughs> uh, Dan Adkins, co-creator of Thunder Agents, said. Wally, Jesus, from the word go, he put in a lot of work. You could see he was frustrated by all the work he had to do. He was meticulous in a lot of things. He had 36 different bottles of ink he'd keep in shades of from black all the way down to a light gray. You made your own grays then by diluting the ink with water, and he'd mix and keep all 36 bottles up all the time. And to further elaborate on that, we have Larry Hammer who explains, I taught him how to cook a couple simple dishes once, then I went away for a week. When I came back, I found he had just been cooking those same things over and over. Not because they were the only things he knew how to cook. It was just because he discovered something new and he had to get into it, master it, discipline it. At one comic book convention in the early 1970s, it is said that uh, Wally Wood attended wearing only one shoe. We couldn't find out which one, but there was a lot of corroboration for it. Mm -hmm. In 1980 and 1981, Wood did two issues of a completely pornographic comic book titled Gang Bang. And we're going to read that first one in just a few moments. But just to wrap up on Wally first, over many years of drawing comics, he learned and developed some techniques that could be applied repeatedly, uh, more to save time than anything else. He'd keep uh, sketches of these panels around his desk for himself and to show assistance, along with the note, Never draw anything you can copy, never copy anything you can trace, never trace anything you can cut out and paste up. In 1980, Wood's original three-page, 24-panel version of Panels That Work was published with proper copyright notice in the Wallace Wood Sketchbook, published by Crouch Wood. Around 1981, Wood's former assistant Larry Hama, by then an editor at Marvel Comics, pasted up photocopies of Wood's drawings on a single page, which Hama titled, Wally Wood's 22 Panels That Always Work! Uh, subtitled, or some interesting ways to get some variety into those boring panels where some dumb writer has a bunch of lame characters sitting around and talking for page after page. Hama left out two of the original 24 panels as his photocopies were too faint to make out some of Wood's lightest sketches. So that's, we just throw those out, you know, that's fine. We don't need those. Uh, Hama, they weren't, they didn't always work. Exactly. Those two didn't work that well. The other 22 <laughs> worked perfectly good. Uh, Hamas distributed Wood's elegantly simple primer to basic storytelling to artists in the Marvel bullpen who in turn passed them on to their friends and colleagues. Eventually, 22 panels made the rounds of just about every cartoonist or aspiring comic book artist in the industry and achieved its own iconic status. I think the first time I saw them were in the uh, were in the Scott McCloud book. I think there was he he included some of them there. Yeah, he, uh, he, he, the he understanding drew a lot of them, Is he, uh, That's right. You're right. But, but, yes. but you're right. That I didn't even know if all 22 were there, but there are a lot in there. There are some, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, now Howard Chaikin worked briefly in Wood Studio from 1970 through 1971, and he would say he was kind of at the end of his rope. He was not a healthy guy. He felt betrayed by so many circumstances. He was a classic untreated drunk. It's a shame because he was one of my artistic heroes. He was an astonishing artist who just ran out of steam. Now, Wally Wood would win several awards, both during his life and posthumously, including the National Cartoonist Society Comic Book Division Awards in 1957, 1959, and 1965. 
He won the Alley Award for Best Pencil Work in 1965 and the Alley Award for Best Ink Work in 1966. He was the Best Foreign Cartoonist Award, uh, Angelim International Comics Festival, 1978. He inducted into the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1989, inducted into the Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame in 1992, and the Inkwell Awards Joe Sinnott Hall of Fame Award in 2011. That's a beautiful sounding one. It is. <laughs> I think the nameplate is like uh, six inches long on that one. <laughs> uh, in 1972, former EC Comics editor and creator of Mad Magazine, Harvey Kurtzman said Wally Wood was a workhorse and I feel that Wally devoted himself so intensely to his work that he burned himself out he overworked his body that's my own observation Wally had attention in him and intensity that he locked away in an internal steam boiler and I always had the feeling that Wally was capable of erupting which he apparently did occasionally but he had that quality of frustration and tension and I think it ate away his insides and the work really used him up I think he delivered some of the finest work that was ever drawn, and I think it's to his credit that he put so much intensity into his work at great sacrifice to himself. Yes, for much of his adult life, uh, Wood would suffer from chronic, unexplainable headaches. In the 1970s, following bouts with alcoholism, uh, Wood would experience kidney failure. Uh, A stroke in 1978 caused loss of vision in one eye. Faced with his declining health and career prospects, he committed suicide by gunshot in Los Angeles on November 2nd, 1981. Toward the end of his life, an embittered Wood would say, according to one biography, if I had to do it all over again, I'd cut off my hands. In a 1980 interview with Shell Dorf in The Buyer's Guide, he remarked, I worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week for years. Being a comic book artist is like sentencing yourself to life imprisonment at hard labor in solitary confinement. I don't think I'd do it again. And from Wizard Magazine, number 228, June 2010, uh, cover date, which had a little retrospective on Wallywood. Uh, a lot of people had some quotes. Ralph Reese, uh, who worked under Wood in the 1960s, said, To me, he was a great friend and mentor. Yes, Howard Chaikin, who we mentioned, uh, had worked under Wood around 1970 or so, would say, he was just an engine of rage. I really can't put it any more specifically than that. Everybody who actually met him liked him, says Larry Hama, another Wood assistant. Uh, He had his problems, but he was a stand-up guy. Wally was a very talented artist, but he was a dour, humorless person, at least when when relating to me. That's from Al Feldstein, Wood's editor at EC, and he continues to say, I found him difficult to talk to, almost impossible to criticize, and often depressed. You can't talk about Woody without talking about drinking, says longtime comics writer and and editor Denny O'Neill, himself a recovering alcoholic. And that ends our bio of Wally Wood. That's something we, we, this is something we wouldn't do like this, right, Chris, on mm. a regular cosmic treadmill. I don't think we would go this sad, but uh, yeah, this yeah. is this is a true side of comics creating. It's a, a very solitary, can be very lonely existence, and some of these sure. there are more stories out there of people that get very isolated and uh, a little squirrely, even I would say. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we'll put that aside and we'll jump right into the uh, wild fun that is Gang Bang number one. <laughs> the cover is, uh, well, um, it's a very graphic depiction of missionary position sex. That's really all you can say about it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the best we can put it. A brown haired guy is doing a blonde woman on a bed. Her legs are on his shoulders. Another darker haired woman has just entered the bedroom and she looks mildly annoyed. She says, So, I thought you were going to see an old army buddy. 
And the fellow goes, dear, this is my old army buddy. Meet Sally Forth. Whoa, the top reads a nuance special. It's good for you. It clears the complexion, soothes the nerves. It's better to exercise than swimming. Coke, come on, gang. Bang. Mm. A banner to the left depicts faces of the characters depicted within, and the copy would read... Featuring the raucous hard action sex lives of Lil Ann Abner, farmer, uh, comma, farmer's daughter, Perry and the Privates, So White, and Sally Forth. A banner at the lower left corner indicates that this is a premiere issue and also a collector's edition. And a burst tells us that this comic is adults only, and it, it very, 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 very much, much is. is. Uh, the inside cover is an illustrated table of contents, and in this case, uh, full-blown sex on the cover didn't include you in as to what kind of comic this is. The chosen panels are all sex scenes. They drive the point home. There's not, not one of them that isn't just flat-out sex. Uh, please don't say drive the point home. All right, fine. <laughs> now the uh, the first story is our cover story. We're meeting Sally Forth. Right. This is that comic strip by Greg Howard from the 1980s. This was about a working mom dealing with juggling her family and career. Remember, she had a brown no, no, curve. That, this is a different Sally Forth. Oh. This is this is the Wally Wood created. All right, which we right. talked about it. That's right. We just talked about but, it. Now, just to keep everything organized, uh, in a 1976 interview, Wally Wood would recall, it all started in 1968 when I was asked to do a complete comic section for a proposed tabloid newspaper for servicemen, four pages of full-color, service-oriented humor strips. There was a high-flying lowlife uh, named Wild Bill Yonder. A couple of others, for some reason, escaped my memory, such an embarrassment, and uh, one that I felt and still feel had a great name for a comic heroine. Sally Forth. Yeah, the strip was about army sympathizer and adventurer Sally Forth and the myriad of ways she could become naked. She debuted in Military News, a 16-page tabloid from Armed Forces Diamond Sales in June 1968. The strip returned in July 26, 1971 in the Overseas Weekly, a tabloid intended for U.S. military men serving outside North America, and ran until April 22, 1974. The Sally Forth comics were translated into Dutch during the late 1970s, and the character was named Dorche Stoot and appeared in the male-oriented magazine Gummy. Hmm. How about that? One. I wonder what Dorty Stoot means. I don't really want to know. I don't think yeah, I want to know. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> now, our first story is Sally Forth, and uh, there's the blonde bombshell now in Splash Panel, and she's already naked. Now, she's either getting dressed or undressed. It is uh, it is tough to tell since it is just a splash page. I think she might just be folding a tablecloth, frankly. I'm she not might sure what's be. Yeah. <laughs> the caption reads, Sally is about to be discharged from the army. A short and cartoonish army private has appeared at the open door behind her. Sally, get over to Major Asburn on the double. Time for your pre-separation physical. A pre-separation? Gee, I didn't know. Thinks to herself, well, if he said on the double, I guess I'd better get right over there. You think she'll bother to get dressed? I'm not even sure she owns any clothing at this point. Yeah, maybe not. So she heads right over to the infirmary where a snooty doctor is prepared to do his duty to this beauty. And, uh, yes, she is in the nude. Yes, the doctor goes, take your clothes off and lay down on the table. But I'm not. You said come right over. Sally lays down and pulls her legs back like this is a gynecological examination. Uh, this guy isn't a gynecologist. Dude, I know. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, the doctor is examining at Sally right in her nethers. 
Mm, yes, everything seems to be in working condition. Sally thinks, oh, he's going to touch my thing. Please don't let him touch my button. What, does she somehow, like, get more naked? <laughs> really? What's going to happen? <laughs> the caption says, Sally's button. When anyone touches Sally's clitoris, it turns her brain off and puts her ass in gear. She thinks, oh, he touched it, and now he's licking it. I'm pretty sure that isn't part of the Hippocratic Oath, is it? <laughs> I've never seen that. No, I don't know what that's about. The, 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 two, the two snakes entwining. Don't, don't <laughs> the doctor goes... <laughs> Just in the interest of science, ma'am. That has to be the worst pickup line I've ever heard, really. I mean, come might, on. It might work, though. It looks, it looks like it might work. The doctor then prepares to uh, mount Sally forth. Uh, and for those keeping score, his member is unnaturally large. Mm-hmm. If I kid myself, I want you. I need you. I love you. Hey, let's keep this uh, sexual molestation strictly professional <laughs> here, Doc. Come on now. All on the up and up. Uh, now, the doctor goes to work, but is then disturbed by a voice off panel. Yeah. Major, what the hell is going on here? General, I was uh, giving Sally an exam. Well, let her up. It's time for her separation. Sally Forth is turned out to the civilian streets wearing a very small, tight dress and looking pretty dazed. All around her, creeps and sleazebag gawk at Sally, some with a very visible uh, tents uh, being pitched. Yeah, they are pitching tents. Caption reads, Poor Sally. Her motor is still running. She is discharged and out on the street hardly knowing where she is. Nothing short of an orgasm will turn it off. Suddenly she hears... A man named Bill Yonder yelling, Sally! This is a clean-cut-looking blonde fellow who gathers Sally up in his arms, and uh, we mean gathers. One hand has gone right up her blouse. <laughs> Sally, am I glad to see you. It's been so long. <sighs> this guy takes a day's Sally to his apartment where he gropes her and then uh, has her naked on his bed, all in like two panels. Here. Pretty much it. It's, yeah. He's a fast worker. It's Bill Yonder, Wild Bill, and Sally is dimly aware he's taking her to his place. And no sooner has he closed the door... He thinks to himself, gee, she never acted like this before. Maybe this time I can squall with her. And his first fumbling overtures meet with unexpected passion. Sally is naked on her back, uh, lying on Bill. He's still clothed, but uh, his uh, soldier is out of his pants, and uh, Sally's <laughs> holding it. Yes, Bill thinks to himself, hey, she's really hot. Okay, Sally, you want it? You get it. So, Bill Yonder and Sally Forth have sex in uh, several positions, several very graphic positions. The, the, these pages wouldn't end. <laughs> it goes on for a few pages, too, yes. It goes on forever. <laughs> it, 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 this, this is the first uh, decompressed uh, porno comic. <laughs> the, cap, the caption reads, Sally is really going. Her small cries of pleasure become louder. Oh! Oh! oh <laughs> and at last are a veritable symphony of rapture. Finally ending in a crescendo as both of them arrive at orgasm simultaneously. Their session concluded, Bill Yonder lights a cigarette and says, Well, how was I? How was what? 
If she's not singing Flight of the Valkyries, you got nothing. You got nothing, but yeah. So later, Sally's hanging out in the nude on Bill's couch reading the newspaper, and Bill's sitting at a table in the background smoking a cigarette. Caption reads, Sally decides to stay a few days until she gets situated and finds a job. Gee, the paper's full of ads for jobs I can't qualify for. What are you doing now, Bill? I'm doing research on marital, marital adjustment, and I'm helping people to overcome their problems. Say, you might be perfect for this sort of thing. How'd you like to be a surrogate? A surrogate? Gee, I like that. Sounds important. Uh, by now, uh, Bill has started having sex with Sally Forth, incidentally. That's right, right in the middle of the conversation. Why not? Well, she yeah. she, she was already naked, so she, this is true. <laughs> Caption says, "This time, Bill neglects to touch her button, and the resulting screw, while satisfying, is hardly earth shaking." Come on, it's like ten thirty in the morning. Yeah, they've been enough. doing it like for six pages last night, so come on. <laughs> now Sally heads over to us on Balding Sleazy Guy's apartment. The next morning, Sally begins her new career. And the client goes, "Yes, I'm Sally, your surrogate." The client ushers Sally in and immediately begins groping her. Come in, take off your clothes, and lie on the couch. Here now, I'm not that kind of a girl. Sally, come on. You totally are. You totally are that kind of a girl. I'm just, I mean, you don't have to, but you are that kind of a girl. Uh, this guy has Sally naked on the couch faster than you can say the federal statutes against coercion and rape. Now, don't play coy with me, young lady. We both know what you're here for. Oh, no. Uh, I'm not that kind of girl. Uh, uh. Now, should we mention that all the art around this guy's home is framed pictures of naked people and penis-shaped bookends? Uh, no, we shouldn't. Okay, cool. We want that. Uh, to make a long story short, the client rapes Sally Forth. Uh, mm -hmm. When she gets back to Bill Yonder, she's not too thrilled about that. That's the whole idea, Sally. This entire therapy is experimental. And you're like a guinea pig in my experiment. Say, that's not very nice. Besides, I'm not even Italian. Uh, <laughs> won't you try again? After all, it's for science. Well, if it's for science... That that line is working. It is working. Um, it's true. Yeah. Now, in the next panel, Sally Forth is uh, with another guy in another bed, and uh, they're, they're not sleeping. And so, Sally tries another client, and another, and still another. Then... Sally sees Bill Yonder accepting some cash from one of the clients. And he's also dressing a whole lot better than he did just a, a few pages ago. Say, wasn't he giving you money? Oh, yes, a donation for my foundation. Got to keep up, keep the good work going, right? Well, gee, I don't know. After all, it's kind of like procuring, isn't it? Don't wear your head out thinking, Sally. It's not your strongest point. Uh, Sally was already naked when this conversation began, so it is a simple matter for Bill to lay her down and molest her. Why not? Uh, the caption reads, Bill has meanwhile figured out Sally's vulnerable spot. Oh, don't! Stop! That's my button! Don't! Stop! Oh! Don't stop! The two of them perform some oral on each other, and then they screw, which makes Sally yodel again. After the act, they're lying in bed, and Bill lights up another cigarette. I've decided to start group therapy sessions, Sally. Uh, when did Bill become a therapist? And I, mean, I don't understand. Did, yeah. Is that his thing? Is he just like does a he have qualifications? <laughs> yeah, does he have a degree, my friend? Yeah. You mean? Yes. For tomorrow, I've booked 12 people, and you'll have to handle four at a time. My goodness. Well, I never. 
then the big day arrives, and uh, what more can we say? Sally Forth takes on multiple clients. Yeah, Bill has advised them about Sally's button, so she's singing like a Spice Girl. The caption reads, Sally's group therapy is a hit. So after the 12 clients have their uh, therapy, Sally's lying face down in the bed. Which is still surprisingly well made. Uh, I guess it's a neat bunch of fellas they had there, right? I gotta say, yeah, the, the sheets are still tucked and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sally says, what a day. Now I know what they mean by all oh, my aching ass. Who, who is they in this case? Uh, paddle Tessis? Really? Right? <laughs> who says that? <laughs> I, I've never said that. Uh, Bill Yonder says, those poor unfortunates need you, Sally. Yeah. I can't wait to start helping them. And that's the punchline. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Did that, that ending make any sense to you, Chris? No, it sure didn't. I was. Sure I didn't. really was lost at what was happening. But uh, all right. Maybe there's some Minnesota slang we missed out on. I'm not sure. I'm glad they didn't get too deep into the military stuff. At least you know they they kind of went away from there. That. <laughs> It's like, it's like, what the hell did I have to do with anything? Anyway, our next story. And by the way, all these stories, if it isn't clear, are parodies of uh, existing properties. Uh, not all of them owned by Wally Wood. The next one is Lil Ann Abner. And this is a uh, parody of a strip called Lil Abner. That was a daily comic strip by Al Cap, initially distributed by United Features. It ran from August 13th, 1934 to November 13th, 1977. It was ostensibly about the hillbilly Yoakum family from Dogpatch, USA, and specifically about a titular character, Lil Abner Yoakum. But really, this strip was a commentary on the American society and world events through the lens of simple people that boiled issues down with their folksy wisdom. The strip was, huge, the strip was hugely popular in its heyday, and its characters pitched grape nut cereal, craft caramels, ivory soap, oxidol, does and draft detergents, fruit of the loom, Orange Crush, Nestle's Cocoa, Cheney Neckties, Pedigree Pencils, Strunk Chainsaws, U.S. Royal Tires, Head and Shoulders Shampoo, General Electric Light Bulbs, Cream of Wheat, and Wild Roots Cream Oil, and more. And this I find crazy, Chris, that Al Cap himself endorsed Chesterfield cigarettes and, despite not even drinking alcohol, Rheingold beer. So that's like a real, the actual strip artist and writer, you know? The artist, yeah. Uh, like, you know, when I was a kid, I wouldn't know who the guy was drawing and writing this strip, but that's how big it was. Yeah, who's who's Jim Davis, right? Exactly. I, mean, I, mean, I, I couldn't point him out of a lineup, and they've got this guy advertising. Looks nothing like John. Anyway, uh, Arbuckle. <laughs> uh, there were even dogpatch-themed family restaurants called Lil Abner's in Louisville, Kentucky, Morton Grove, Illinois, and Seattle, Washington. How about that? Now we get into the story, and Abner is strolling along with his fishing pole one day, while a dark-haired woman, naked from the waist down, leers at him. And uh, she she's also playing with herself. Yeah. She says, Wow, look at that. It's that simple-ass yoke boy. Maybe if I play my cards right... Oh, happy day. What a nice day to go fishing. No women to bother me. The dark-haired woman sits alluringly, bearing herself to Abner. Yeah, she's sitting in a uh, stinking pigsty. Uh, literal pigs are behind her, so yes. Where's you going, Abner? I'm going fishing. Now, don't you mess with me. So her name Moonshine McSwine hurries over to Abner's pants and pulls them right down. And then she uh, fishes out his pole. Yeah. Ooh, but I just got to check your equipment, honey. Say, that's a mighty big pole you got there. 
Doggone y'all moonshine. Now y'all gonna make it swell up. Well, I knows one way to take down the swelling. Moonshine goes to work giving uh, mouth hugs. Okay. Yar, now, what is y'all doing? Oh, I feel so peculiar. I think size's coming. And Moonshine looks wide and thinks to herself, but it's still up. Now I get my chance to get screwed. I guess it makes sense when she thinks in the same hillbilly vernacular that she talks. Yeah, right? I guess so. That's the way, yeah. she, that's the way she is. Yeah. <laughs> now, Moonshine releases Abner's member and has a suggestion. Wow, that didn't work. Now we got to try something else. She turns around and uh, presents herself to Abner. That's it. Push her in as far as it'll go. Like this, Moonshine? Uh, well, uh, they're having sex in a pigsty now. In fact, I, I think Moonshine might be taking Abner's uh, virginity. It seems that way. He doesn't, he doesn't know what he's doing. So he's got no clue. That's fine, honey. Now just keep it shoving. Hey, what's the matter? Why is yo stopping? A busty blonde woman in a polka dot top enters the scene, and she's crying. Oh, Abner, how could you? Hello, Daisy Er, Wolfie, you talking your dress off. And she is at that, and she says, you never even kiss me, and here y'all is just screwing with Moonshine McSwine. Da- Daisy Lil grabs Abner by his penis and leads him away from the scene. In the background, Moonshine McSwine is left in the dirt, while a young Native American boy and an overweight bearded hillbilly advance on her. Oh, Moonshine is also smoking a corncob pipe all of a sudden. Well, she is a hillbilly. I guess she just busted it's true. that. Daisy Lil, Daisy Lil says, It's time I got some of that. Come here, Abner. Yes, um. And then the Native American known as Loathsome Polecat says, Look, Harass Joe, an unoccupied female. <laughs> Harass Joe goes, Right, Loathsome Polecat, I get the bottom half. Excuse me, ma'am. Harass Joe and Loathsome Polecat take their positions on Moonshine McSwine. Joe in the rear, Polecat in the front. <laughs> Hot damn! <laughs> Better than a handful of lard. Look at your ass, honey. I was about to come. Me, ugh, too. <laughs> I think this is the most offensive comic, you know. And I don't, I don't think the sex is the most offensive part of it. <laughs> Uh, it's really <laughs> Elsewhere, Abner and Daisy Lil are go are doing it. Doggone! I'm getting to like this. Oh, Abner! Two men, one in a beaten up hat, happen upon the scene. They're first shown in shadow, but we soon learn that this is Daisy Lil's father and brother. Yeah, the dad says, "Wow, looks like Daisy got herself a husband. You got your shotgun, son." Show enough, Pappy. Yeah. The son aims his shotgun at Abner's humping form and cocks the trigger. Oh, we probably shouldn't say cocks the trigger. You got a point there, yeah. Hold that right, hold it right there, son. Or son-in-law. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, hello, Paul. And later, the two are hastily wed before the preacher. Uh, did we say later? We mean immediately after. The two yes. are still naked from the waist naked. down. Like, they let them pull their pants on. Uh, and Daisy Lil is holding Abner's rigid joint. Oh. Uh, Paul has a shotgun aimed at Abner's head. Uh, and uh, Paul Lil says, Say I do, cuss you. Abner goes, I does. The preacher says, 
are now pronounces y'all man and wife. The caption reads, and there you have it, friends, the real story of how Abner and Daisy Lil got married. I, I remember wanting asking for the real story to you, Chris. These were the burning, the burning questions. I was okay with just knowing nothing about it, but okay. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't tell them apart if I, if I told them from the front, so oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> y'all don't, y'all don't know nothing about that. That's crazy. All right. Y'all can't tell you pole calf from your hard ass. <laughs> Uh, now that is just the second story. We do have. Uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, uh, Mr. Wood might have had a little thing for Snow White. So let's uh, let's explore that a little deeper here with uh, Snow White and the Six Dorks. Now Snow White is a fairy tale penned by the brothers Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. It was published in, 19, in 1812 in the first edition of Grimm's Fairy Tales. But the popular version, whose imagery is used in this particular parody, is the Walt Disney movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was widely released in 1938 and directed by David Hand. The Disney adaptation is actually not far off from the original fairy tale, with a few things taken out for timing reasons. Uh, the dwarves in the original story were unnamed, but they were named for the 1912 theatrical production of the tale, although those names were not, uh, you know, dopey, sneezy, sleepy, and all yeah, those. they were just like John, Fred, which literally just names of people. Polecat Steve. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been maybe one of them. Uh, <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was the first full-length feature animated film. The film was a tremendous critical success, with many reviewers hailing it as a genuine work of art, recommended for both children and adults. At the 11th Academy Awards, the film won an Academy Honorary Award for Walt Disney as a significant screen innovation which has charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field. Disney received a full-size Oscar statuette and seven miniature ones, presented to him by 10-year-old child actress Shirley Temple. The film was also nominated but did not win for Best Musical Score. Now this story starts out humming. Uh, we got the Wicked Queen slouched on her uh, throne... And a page boy's face between her legs. Yeah, the caption reads, Once upon a time, an evil queen asked her magic mirror. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the best lay of them all? Oh, Queenie, although it's true that you are a mighty good screw, young so white is slender, her kitty is tender, and bare-ass more fair-ass than you. And the face in the mirror faded to reveal. So White is on her hands and knees, scrubbing the floor of the castle. Uh, incidentally, though, she is visually like the Disney version of the princess. She is not actually white. She's black for some reason. Yes. So White, I knew I should have had her killed. Oh, someday my prince will come. As if on command, Sir Moorcock appeared and proceeded to ravish her on the spot. The prince does show up instantly and has immediately buried himself into So White's behind. And he goes, You called? Have no fear, Moorcock is here. Not now. I have a headache. Oh, well, just a quickie, though. She wouldn't fit in the book otherwise. No. Uh, <laughs> elsewhere, the queen is bent over and being serviced from behind by someone, probably her personal assistant or something. And so, the queen calls her favorite hunter. And take her out in the woods and make sure she doesn't come back. The next day, as the hunter was preparing to do the dirty deed... So White and the hunter are in the forest, and he's drawn a big buck knife. So White says, Oh, what are y'all doing with that knife? So White falls to her knees before the hunter's very visible boner. 
I don't know about you. What, what do you think is going to happen next? I couldn't imagine what might happen oh. next, Chris. Please, sir, <laughs> I beg of you, spare me. I'll do anything. Anything. Anything? How about sucking on this for a while? Well, I didn't mean... Ah, uh, sure, what the hell? Why not? Yep. So White thinks to herself, there, maybe he'll be satisfied now and let me go. You haven't been reading this comic so far, have you, So White? Really? No. There's a formula <laughs> no, we do things here. we're finding, yeah. <laughs> Nay, you have but fan my desire. Now I must have your ass. So So White is turned over and mounted by the hunter. Sorry, princess, but after all, it beats a sharp knife in the gut, right? You're not sorry, dude, don't lie. No, no. Uh, the hunter finishes up and leaves So White naked from the waist down. Uh, she never does put her skirt back on for the rest of the story for some reason. <laughs> Fairly well, maid. I must go far before the queen finds out that I did not slay thee. Thank you, kind sir. Kind. Uh, now, So White wanders around the woods for a while, and eventually she comes upon a small house hidden in a dark area. I wonder who lives there. Well, I must rest. She found tiny beds upstairs and fell across them asleep at once. And with her legs wide open, of course. She awoke to find... So White is surrounded by several familiar-looking dwarves. It looks like Dopey has his tongue between her legs. Who? What? And one, uh, one of the dwarves goes, Permit me to introduce myself. I'm Dork. The eager one eating you is called Retardo. Oh, my mistake. Not Dopey at all, yeah. <laughs> and this is Sloppy and Sloppy, Peepy and Sleazy. <laughs> Dork has now begun screwing So White. And last but not least is Protozoa, who nobody has ever been able to figure out. Protozoa is a penis and testicles with a dwarf's hat on it. That's yeah. All, that's all it yeah. is. That's it. Uh, the dwarves have, uh, they all have their way with So White, one at a time. And So White stayed with the seven dorks and kept them all happy. And then, one day... And the dork goes, I've got an idea. How'd you like to do all of us? Okay, line up, fellas. That's not what I had in mind. Ever hear of a gangbang? Hey, that's the name of this comic book. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. All of you? I don't think I have enough apertures. Well, let's see what we can do, shall we? And, uh, oh my, oh, uh, mm. so White tries. She takes Slappy, then Sleazy enters by the back door. She takes Dork in her mouth and gives hand jobs to Sloppy and Groucho, which leaves Peepy and Retardo to find holes of their own. And Peepy has uh, found his hole, and it, it's in Sleazy. Oh, okay, so he's days all right. Uh, you show this is in a Abbott and Costello routine here, you know? It might be. Who's on, who's on Peepy? Is that what it is? <laughs> At last, they were all satisfied. All except Retardo. He, he seems pretty pleased with himself. He's sitting on the floor and stroking his thing. Uh, I, I'm more wondering about Protozoa. Yeah, anybody, anybody helping Protozoa out? I mean, I don't think Protozoa <laughs> He doesn't even walk. have a hand, right? Yeah, nothing. Uh, back at the castle, the evil queen is getting cunnilingus again, or still? We have no idea. Maybe a know. continual thing. <laughs> mirror, mirror, etc. How about it now? Oh, queen, etc. Same story. She's living in the woods with seven little men. The, pal the page boy mounts the queen, but she is still furious. Forking spit, am I never to be rid of that little bitch? Well, if a job's to be done right, do it yourself. 
And so the queen, disguised as an old witch, sold so white an apple. Now, this scene could be taken, like, directly from the Disney cartoon here, except the fact that So White is naked from the waist down. Still. That would be different, yeah. That would be a big difference, I think, yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, you'd notice that. <laughs> so White took a bite and fell down dead. The dwarves built her a glass coffin and paid their respects every night. Yeah, this scene is almost uh, nearly identical to the one from the Disney film, too, but Except for the fact that So White is completely naked in this glass coffin. Oh, uh, and the dwarves are masturbating near her corpse. Yeah, that that one actually was cut by Disney. Oh, okay. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. One day, Sir Moorcock rode by. And he does at that, then cradles So White's body, body and strokes between her legs. What have we here? A maiden fair? Hey, she's still warm. No use letting her go to waste. Yes, uh, the prince has sex with the princess's corpse. Yep. Uh, you know, it brings her back to life, but, but still, he, he, he performs necrophilia, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sir Moorcock takes So White away on his horse, and she's up front holding onto the horse's neck. Sir Moorcock is uh, behind her. Yeah. Caption reads, Boy, was she aroused. Then Sir Moorcock rode off with her, and the dwarves waved a sad farewell, all except Retardo, who was busy with a trick he had learned. That trick specifically is uh, masturbating. That was all it was. That was That's no, it. No magic That's to it. it. Uh, we all nope. know about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Next story. Uh, and this one, okay, so now we're getting into one that is actually sort of, you know, uh, the, this is the, the farmer's daughter. This, you know, you, you consider this to have sexual content, I think, right? These kind of stories. For sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, the farmer's daughter, of course, is more of a concept. There's no real one story about it. Uh, used for different kinds of stories and jokes about a farmer's naive, robust daughter who might be adventurous or promiscuous, depending on the nature of the story. It's a very old archetype. A farmer's daughter appears in the 13th century Icelandic Grettis Saga, which is a tale about the life of a corpulent outlaw, Grettir Asmundarasun. Mm. Uh, in the saga, the farmer's daughter and a female servant discover a fugitive warrior sleeping naked in a barn. The servant mocks the size of the warrior's penis, and the warrior awakens and forces himself on her as the farmer's daughter flees. A medieval French story describes a farmer's daughter a farmer's daughter who couldn't bear to hear about forking. Uh, in the story, the farmer's daughter is made sick by the very mention of vulgar words. So she and her father's farmhand come up with euphemisms, referring to his penis as a horse and her vagina as a spring. At the end of the story, however, she instructs him to uh, water his horse in her spring, implying it's the only words that bother her. Yeah, it's only those words, so... Hilarious. Mm -hmm. Now, even the stereotype of the hardy, strong farmer's daughter goes back a very long time. In the the 1753 paramilitary debate, uh, parliamentary debate in England about the right of people to marry outside of class, one said, a farmer's daughter is a match for the eldest son of the best lord in the land, and perhaps a better match than his father would choose for him because she will bring good and wholesome blood into the family but in general the stories and jokes revolve around a door-to-door salesman or another unexpected visitor spending the night at a farm and taking advantage of the farmer's uh, daughter's naivete 
Uh, more modern version of the farmer's daughter would probably be like Daisy Duke and the Dukes of Hazzard and uh, Ellie Mae Clampett and the Beverly Hillbillies, as well as uh, Daisy May in the comic strip Little Abner. That's right. She definitely was a farmer's daughter type, although mm-hmm. uh, I believe you can only find the sex in this comic. You'd never in the strip that I know of. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so the story begins down on the farm. An older man's about to hop into his Model T Ford sedan. His dark-haired daughter is nearby to wish him farewell. Yeah, caption reads, Let us go back to those thrilling days of yesteryear. It is 1938, before TV, and young people have to find their own entertainment. On a farm near a small town in Wisconsin... Yeah, the dad says, Going into town, Sarah, and I'm not back in a couple of hours. Don't forget to feed the chickens. And Sarah goes, Yes, Pa! So Sarah goes inside the farmhouse and immediately pulls her underwear down. (laughs) Sarah was a normal, healthy girl and was extremely horny. She starts touching herself. Yes, and she thinks, Ooh, that feels so good. I know I shouldn't, but... She does. A a fair-haired guy walks onto the scene and he has his thing out of his pants like it was suffocating. (laughs) Caption says... Just then, a young man who occasionally worked for her father happened to be passing by. Uh, Bill, where did... what? You want this? It's better than your finger. Come on, or I'll tell everybody what you were doing. Oh, no. No, not here. Somebody might see. So Sarah leads Bill out of the house, holding him by the joint. Near some trees, she falls to her knees. Is it clean? Well, I took a bath Saturday night. Probably in November. (laughs) Sarah decides that fortune favors the brave, and she does a good job, and Bill returns the favor. Oh, you don't have to do that. I know. I want to, Sarah. Yes, and she essentially put a Petri dish in her mouth. (laughs) Yeah, I think he can just do, you know, take the same plunge. Sure. I shouldn't say take the same plunge. Uh, in (laughs) In seconds, they had their clothing off and were forking like a couple of rabbits. Wait till I tell the guys. Wish they could see me now. Unknown to them, a bunch of boys were skinny dipping in the creek nearby. And they are at that, and now they're converging on this sweaty sex scene. Uh, say, Chris, why why is this comic called Gangbang? I, I wouldn't even be able to hazard a guess. Mm, yeah, well, maybe yeah. we'll find out. Uh, one mm. of the guys says, Holy spit! Hey, fellas, come here! Hey, can we have some, too? Oh, hi. Hi, Al. Sure, come on. You know, this is not what I heard about life down on the farm. I heard there was a lot more Uh -uh. work happening there, not this. I think so. Backbreaking, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) this is back something. Uh, (laughs) So everyone is uh, getting involved, essentially. Uh, Seems like an unusual amount of oral sex happening here, but what do I know? Maybe that's like the perfect amount. For swinging, I, you know, whatever. While on the farm, do as the farmers do. But did, did Protozoa show up? I haven't seen him. I wonder how he's Man, I, where did he go? <laughs> uh, our caption reads, By the time she finishes all of them, the first are ready again. So everyone has two orgasms except Sarah, who has 24. Yeah, but she can keep the change. Probably. <laughs> now I'd, be, I'd better be getting back. Paul will be home soon. Sarah gets dressed and heads back to the farmhouse just in time for Pa to be there, who says, Anything happened today, Sarah? No, Pa. And the caption says, It was a day like all days, full of the events that alter and illuminate our time. All things as they were then, except you were there. And this is a reference to a show created by Goodman Ace for CBS Radio. This is You Are There. This was a historical educational television and radio series broadcast over the CBS radio and CBS television networks 
cumulatively between February 1953 and June 1957. Uh, the series couched American historical events as news broadcast with folks reporting for, in from the field with details or interviews with famous figures. So it'd be like, you know, live from the Civil War, you know, we've got this and blah, blah, blah happening. Uh, Walter Cronkite was the regular host of the TV series, and they tried to bring this back in 1971, Cronkite again hosting, but it only lasted one year. Mm. Next story, Perry and the Privates, which uh, sounds a lot like Terry and the Pirates, <laughs> which was an adventure, an action-adventure comic ship that was created by cartoonist uh, Milton Caniff. Or Caniff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about thrill-seeker Terry Lee, who travels around the world having adventures and uh, grows from a teenage boy to man over the course of the series. The Daily Strip began October 22, 1934, and the Sunday Color Pages began December 9, 1934. Initially, the storylines of the Daily Strips and the Sunday Pages were different. However, on August 26, 1936, they merged into a single ongoing storyline. Now, this strip was wildly popular, but Kniff couldn't share the financial windfall because it was owned and syndicated by United Features. This was a typical situation of the time. Sure. Kniff left Terry and the Pirates. His last strip ran December 29, 1946, and he went on to create Steve Canyon, an awfully similar strip. Uh, <laughs> that ran until Kniff's death until 1988. Uh, duties drawing Terry and the Pirates were given to George Wonder, who kept it going until it was canceled on February 25th, 1973. And you'll remember, Wally Wood was one of his assistants. It's true. Now we open the story with a comely blonde woman lying in bed, and a comely blonde man appears in the doorway. Yeah, the woman says, God, am I horny? Hey, here comes that Perry Lee. Well, no harm in trying. The woman approaches Perry. Perry, I've been meaning to ask you, do you have a girl? Do you ever fool around, you know, petting and feeling and all that? Gee, Parma, Parma, I guess not. I did get Avril to take off her clothes once, but we didn't do anything. Parma begins instantly disrobing, then hugs Perry Lee. Well, it's time you were initiated into the joys of sex. You're too old to still be a virgin. Well, yes, but it's wrong, isn't it? Uh, anyway, I kind of thought of you as my big sister. Oh, man, it's friend-zoning her right here. Mm-hmm. Oh, Perry, hold me. I need you. And Perry thinks, gosh, I think she wants to get laid. I don't believe this is happening. Perma reaches into Perry's fly and takes out his unit. Sort of a formula to these things, isn't it? Yeah, I kind of see it as six yeah. kind of things happening in each story. <laughs> now, let's see what you've got here. My, you are a big boy, aren't you? You know, like they have, like a. We hear about the artists that had like like the six faces that they drew all the time. Yeah, this is the same kind of thing. <laughs> these these are the these are the uh, you know the uh, three panels that work is essentially what we're using. Here. This is like the the the, the six penises of the Hollywood. Uh, oh, that feels good. Please don't stop. Feels even better than when I do it myself. But not as good when it's, as when it's Capuchin Monkey does it. That's when it's really true. Good. Uh, Perma drops to her knees and. Uh, I mean, you know, you know what happens right here. Uh, to completion, even, so that's something. Yeah. And now it is Perry's time to reciprocate with his lingual talents. Now I'm sure of it. I'm definitely seeing a formula definitely here. Definitely seeing something. <laughs> yeah. Ah, now it's your turn, Perry. You're not through yet. An old lady like me has needs, too, you know. Want to try some box lunch? Did, uh, did, did she really just say that? Hold on, hold on. It gets worse. Okay. Once you get past the smell, you've got it licked. Done. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Barry finds he likes this act quite a lot and gets into it. 
<laughs> Don't say gets into it. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's it, Perry. Lick a little higher. There. That's my clitoris, and it's driving me wild. Oh, oh. You sure you never did this? You're so good at it. Oh, oh, oh. I'm, I'm coming. And now... It's the main event. Ready or not, here I come. I'm gonna screw you. That's the whole idea, lover. Shove that big fat dink into me. Oh, oh God, it's big. Too big initially, but Perry is able to cram himself into perma before long. So you say this is a parody of an action-adventure comic strip, Chris. Is that, what this, is that what this is? Okay. I just want to make sure. <laughs> yes. It's even better the second time. Uh, Perma, I think I love you. Me too, honey. Just keep it up. I think I'm going to come again. Yes. Oh. Then a brunette woman in a silken robe shows up at the door. This is the Dragon Lady, a major nemesis of Terry Lee and Terry and the Pirates, so, uh... We're going to guess that in this parody strip, she's here to have sex. That's what I'm guessing. Probably, yeah. probably. It's the DL, and I think she's PO'd. No, I am not, but I would like to join the fun if I may. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. told you, yeah. 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 Uh, Dragon Lady sinks to her knees to do that thing women do in this comic book when they sink to their knees. Uh, we've got Perma still in the background, still spread eagle. Hey, Perry, don't forget a little Perma. I'm not through yet. Caption reads, and Perry services them both, eating Perma while banging the DL. Dragon Lady's on the floor while Perma Lady's up above her on some low bedding. It's actually a pretty efficient setup, to be honest with you. Yeah, they're ahead of their time. (laughs) Uh, And finished off with an earth-shattering triple orgasm. Is that anything like the triple Lindy dive from back to school? Because if it is, that was a tough one, yeah. That's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, afterward, the three of them are laying out on the bed and, you know, basking in the afterglow. Well, I thank you for the exercise. You have done well, young Perry. How did you like it? And uh, that's it, folks. That's it. That yeah. story. Hope you punchline. Hope you enjoyed the uh, Terry and the Pirates parody. Oh. Uh, it, this is almost done now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have uh, the inside back cover depicts uh, Sally Forth getting dressed, or again, piss robing. We really can't say. She says, this is not the end. If you like this one, you'll love the next issue of Bang. Watch for it. It'll knock your pants off. The back cover is a nude blonde woman on her stomach, shown from behind and lying inside of a black and white target. And the word Bang in red is written above her head. And that's that, (laughs) folks. So I got to ask you, Chris, is this the first, you know, I don't want to, I don't want Hmm. to, uh, Tease too much of your, you know, wayward youth. You know, we were, we've all been. Is this, <laughs> is this the first time you've looked at a straight up dead ass porno comic? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Then, so every other one has been like an Omaha or at least a Cherry yeah, Pop Tart, where there was some yeah. framing work. This, this was, this was closer to like videotapes from the seventies and eighties, where it was like anybody order a pizza. Exactly, extra sausage. <laughs> I mean, that, literally, and that's what this is essentially. You know, it's just like uh, I, people walk into a room and they start banging. Um, but I, I find this, first of all, I find it cool because it's, uh, you know, even though this is not the best art ever, you're looking, mm. you're looking at someone at the end of their life and the end of their career. And yeah. he, you know, this is like nothing for him. You know what I mean? He, sure. I, I don't know. He banged this out half in his sleep, like whatever, you know what I mean? Like mm. doing this stuff is, is old hat. So it was, it was uh, a layup for him, you know? So what taken in that context, it's still pretty damn skillful, you know, even like oh, sure. half-assed, he's doing a pretty good job, but also considering that like a year after this, 
he killed himself. It's uh yeah. He was not in a happy place when this was going on, I assume, and uh just puts a whole different kind of stink on it like I really needed that. Usually, but... yeah, you usually if you look at a book like this, it's like a bunch of dudes like just making a funny, you know, but uh Right. With this being just so close to him taking his own life, it, it, it does put a whole different kind of tone uh, over it here. It's a, it's a lot different than uh, than what you'd figure. It's a little darker, it, even you know. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so and, and you know and you know what's funny is uh, we did find that he was married three times. I kept seeing that in, in different places, but hmm. I could not find out his third marriage. Couldn't find the third. It's yeah. So weird. Like it's a very very private. Uh, reclusive guy. This reclusive is something fellow, yeah. we 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 get this a lot doing uh, bios. That's why often our writer bios are like the whole show. But mm-hmm. what we can dig up duck, dig up about artists, it's very little a lot of times. You know, even some of the greats like Wally Wood. You know, sure, uh, it's never really the inside stuff. It's like what awards they won, what awards they were nominated for, yeah. and a bibliography. What and, they because I guess because they yeah. were home working all the time. You know, they didn't sure. have time to be glad handing. And also, like <laughs> as we found, we're we're pretty sure that some writers have wrote their own uh, <laughs> internet internet bios. You know. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not going to name any names, but sometimes you find these bios where it's like, and then so and so lived at this address, and then it's like, yeah, okay, specific, yeah. Like, and make, third grade teacher, Welch, yeah, right, exactly. Oh. So uh, anyway, that you know, this is this is sort of a little longer form look at uh, Wallywood and a darker side of uh, I think the industry definitely up for the person. Sure. And uh, someday I think we will do a different Wallywood comic for the regular podcast and keep it a little yeah. brighter, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> this one's just for you guys. Uh, thanks a lot again, everybody. Yes. Uh, sorry we're a little bit late with this, and also very sorry for the background noise. I We can't help it. Uh, I have handymen preparing my apartment for sale as we speak, so... I uh, hope it's not too irritating. Did well, was it irritating to you, Chris? Did it like no, no? I I barely heard it. So oh. hopefully, uh, hopefully it won't make it through. So hopefully, if it do, just yeah. just consider that to be part of the banging. All right, how about that? Th- that's all it is. Yeah, this is it's a theme. <laughs> it's a gang bang. <laughs> but uh, I think that's all we got for him this time, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, that'll do it. Just thanks to everybody. I think we got a new patron today. As I a matter know, of fact, we did get so, a new patron today. Uh, that's you know. I, I feel like we, we should be honoring them more somehow, you know, like we're not doing enough. Uh, I don't you know, know I feel the same way, but I, I wouldn't know what, because like, it seems like a lot of the things that it's like, I, what are we going to do? Say your names? Yeah, you know, I, it's, I, it just seems kind of like a, like a gimme. Well, <laughs> you I'm, know? I'm the kind of person I, I wouldn't want my name and then, you know, uh, said and, and in places or listed in the credits or something. Yeah. Where I have, where I have given, I have asked not to be named cause I'm just not that kind of a person. Uh, Whatever that that's me. That's us though. If, hmm. if that's something you guys want, you just say the word. Don't 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 be shy. Don't feel like you know we're gonna make fun of you or whatever. We're happy to do that because that's oh, not, yeah. that's a small thing. But uh, we really, are family. Any, any ideas? Uh, you know, if we can like send you a cake or something like that, let me know uh, what <laughs> we can do uh, to en- enhance your Chris and Reggie experience because we really Absolutely. so much appreciate your support. Uh, really is overwhelming and and touching. Mm-hmm. You know, to see Humbling. that kind of thing. Yes. But if that's all we got from this week, Chris, uh, I'm going to tell them all to keep it on the treadmill and on your button. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. Wait.